Hey everyone, welcome back to the Chain Reaction Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Shaughnessy, a co-founder at Delphi Digital, an independent research boutique providing institutional-grade analysis on the digital asset market. One quick housekeeping item, this podcast is strictly informational and educational and is not investment advice or solicitation to buy or sell any tokens or securities or to make any financial decisions. For full disclosures, please see the bottom of the show notes. Also, our listeners can visit DelphiDigital.io and use coupon code CHAINREACTION in all caps as a special offer to access our research. With that out of the way, I'm thrilled to have on Evan Fang, the founder and CIO of Tapestry Capital. I wanted to have Evan on given he has a storied career in finance and has incredible insight given his positions with Barclays Investment Banking Department to Citadel and then to Point72 before jumping into crypto full-time and creating Tapestry Capital. Evan's able to link the legacy financial world with crypto, and he's able to explain the differences between the two worlds. We close as Evan describes Tapestry Capital, how he plans to differentiate his views on the crypto market and the fund space, and so much more. With that, let's hop into the episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to have on Evan Fang, the founder and CIO of Tapestry Capital. Evan, how's it going? I'm doing well, Tom. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to chat with you in person, and I'm glad we get a chance to do it in front of uh, the, the audience uh, of the podcast. I've been a longtime listener, and uh, it's one of my favorites within this space, so really excited to be here and talk to you. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's nice to you know meet people who also were in the traditional finance world that took the jump in and you know didn't drown yet, so that's always a good thing. <laughs> I appreciate it. Well, I think time will tell how, how deep the pool is, whether it's uh, got water or concrete at the bottom. But uh, yeah, I'm full-time in the space now. I'm certainly happy to talk about my background and the transition into doing this full-time. Yeah, sure. So Evan, I mean, I want to talk a lot about your background and then I want to talk about your fund and what you're building. But I think you have a lot of great insight into the traditional finance world because of your experience. So I guess let's start, you know, back at the beginning. Let's start uh, your time at Barclays in, in their IB department. I guess how was that experience? Sure, yeah, a couple of different points there. I guess to start, um, you know, just a standard disclaimer: all opinions I state are my own. They don't con- constitute financial advice, and uh, it's solely for informational entertainment purposes. Uh, starting with my Barclays experience, yeah, that was uh, that was my first foray into the world of uh, high finance, as people call it. Um, I. Went to Barclays doing investment banking right after I graduated from NYU Stern here in the city. It was a terrific learning experience, uh, very hands-on. I was in the leveraged finance group. So within the investment bank, this was the group that uh, you know dealt with the uh, corporate finance and modeling for leveraged buyouts and M&A funded by high-yield debt. So in addition to getting to do some of the you know, modeling and valuation-based work, I also got to understand the public markets for the high-yield loans and bonds that we helped originate. Uh, so that was pretty eye-opening because not only did we have to think about structuring uh, what would work for the companies, but also ultimately thinking about how, as an underwriter, we would syndicate that into the market. And I'm sure we'll talk about some of those parallels and differences uh, between the traditional markets and crypto markets as we get around to that later. So zooming in on on investment banking, like where do you think crypto is in the investment banking world today? Do you think that there's banks or firms targeting this, or do you think it's just too early? Yeah, I think it's both. Um, you know, there's. I think with respect to crypto uh, in investment banking today, there's not really yet a full fledged investment banking company comprising the same consolidated stack of 
advisory trading research with associated back offices. But obviously, we both know if you are putting some of the pieces of the puzzle together, um, you know, a great example is Galaxy Digital, uh, you know, for Gratis Firm, which is targeting a lot of those similar revenue streams. Um, but I think I'm also noticing there are plenty of examples of individual service providers that start with one product, like uh, BitGo with Custody or ItBit with Paxos, the stablecoin, and then seek to expand into adjacent areas. Um, you know, a lot of people are fighting the free pressure in their existing revenue streams by targeting other, uh, you know, avenues of business, such as liquidity solutions. Uh, for example, BitGo, I think they've talked about how they're trying to enable people to trade directly from the cold wallets under custody. Uh, and then obviously ItBit has um, their exchange that, along with the Paxos offering. So you're definitely starting to see some of that. I think it's still super early to see, um, to guess what the end state ultimately is. And some of that probably depends on uh, the interoperability and composability elements of um, some of these projects that you guys at Delphi have written about in, in the sense of whether it enables um, you know, a full kind of stack to be put together, or if value creation will remain a little more discrete, which so far uh, appears to be the case. That's super interesting, Evan. So, I mean, next up, you were at Citadel, and you, you were also at Point72. Um, I mean, if you want to group the experiences together or, or talk individually about them, I'm definitely interested in, you know, what you learned there, um, you know, any takeaways from, you know, those great positions. And also, you know, was crypto ever mentioned uh, while you had either of those positions? Yeah, that's um, that's uh, obviously a good set of questions to, to tackle next. I think I'll answer the questions kind of point by point. You know, I'll start talking about Citadel and then move over to point seventy two before answering. Um, you know, probably the 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 million dollar question about where I think those guys are at right now with respect to uh, looking at this asset class. Uh, so Citadel was my introduction to what we call the buy side. I, I really enjoyed the mentorship and the training I received from the teams that I worked on there, whether it was learning about how to think through the most stock impactful fundamental metrics, uh, valuation multiples, catalyst pads, secular slash structural themes, or risk reward or portfolio risk management construction. I think those were all skills I um, both got to kind of learn from uh, people that had, had been doing it for years, if not decades, as well as, um, you know, try my hand thinking through the concepts and implementing them myself. Uh, my coverage universe there was within the media and telecom side of the TMT umbrella. But I think the most interesting lesson from my time at Citadel was really being front and center, uh, witnessing the power of disruption within a specific example uh, within the large cap media company space. Um, I remember when I joined in 2014, uh, the large companies like Time Warner, Disney, et cetera, were all dismissing Netflix as a threat, uh, you know, making fun of them and, and paralleling them to the Albanian army, for example, and really um, not worrying about them too much at all. But by the time I left in 2017, um, you know, every conference call and every conference meeting that that investors had with these companies were laser focused on, you know, the the trend of accelerating cord cutting uh, with respect to the, the traditional cable bundle that was getting disrupted by over-the-top providers like Netflix. So I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about the parallels to crypto later, but suffice it to say, I think the biggest takeaway from what I learned at Citadel was um, how easily it is to brush off what is a disruptive technology initially, even as it later you know, accelerates gain steam. So I think that's an interesting point. Um, yeah, um, go ahead. That's super interesting. I mean, I also covered TMT, um, you know, under my MD at, back at Oppenheimer. So I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm back at Oppenheimer right now talking about cord cutting. <laughs> exactly. 
Yeah, remembering all those AT&T and Time Warner uh, pro forma models that were driving me crazy. Um, but you and me uh, both, man. Yeah, that was uh, that was quite the time. But I, I think it's interesting that you talked about you know how a major fund or firm could kind of brush off you know a disruptive technology even you know after it's a fund that's covering these companies for so long. Um, I mean, do you think that uh, like if Ethereum you know was presented to Citadel? Do you think that, or Bitcoin, do you think that they would just brush it off and it would take, you know, they would only get involved once it's too late? Um, I think too late is probably a bit subjective. I think, you know, thinking about uh, the perspective of these larger hedge funds, like the ones that I've worked at, I think from their perspective, they'd rather be, you know, the second one in the door as as opposed to the first um, the first one kind of trying to test out a strategy and make all the mistakes. I think from their perspective, one of the reasons they are uh, as large and successful as they've um, come to be is because they, there is a, a bit of built-in conservatism, whether that's driven by the LPs that are investors in their funds or just, um, you know, generally the the kind of whatever top-down approach uh, a founder, if they're still pretty active on the investment management side, has with respect to these um newer technologies. I think at the end of the day, um, my, my best guess, and this is just uh, super anecdotal is, um, you know, my sense is there's probably people that maybe are more middle or back office at these, uh, financial institutions, whether they're hedge funds or investment banks that, uh, have invested and done research personally, but a large, a large part of the struggle these days is, is really just kind of getting that, um, Buy in internally in a way that uh, ultimately enable them to build a business model uh, and a business case for for the types of investment that we'll need to see in the uh, you know the research the risk management systems that uh, will be important to to kind of really enable investment at scale within uh, this space over time. It's incredible, and you know, moving on to point seventy two, Evan. Um, mm-hmm. Interested in your take there, what you saw internally with regard to crypto. Um, I know. You know, obviously, a lot of people are familiar with Travis Kling. He left to start Ikajai. I, you know, I always pronounce that wrong. Um, and he was at Point72. So always interested to hear your thoughts on, you know, the musings at Point72 uh, when crypto is coming up. Yeah. Um, a funny thing is, you know, whenever I mention my background as I'm meeting people in the space, Travis's name comes up. I haven't had a chance to meet him personally, but I'm looking forward to, to our paths crossing at some point, uh, given we didn't overlap in time period at point 72, but, uh, you know, I, I read their work, uh, it's very thoughtful and, um, yeah, I think that's, you know, a great example of the kind of, um, you know, innovative thinkers that, that maybe have traditional backgrounds that are starting to do some work in this space. Uh, the day to day for me at point 72, honestly, wasn't that different from the work that I did at Citadel. It was still very discretionary, uh, long, short and in investing as, as the fundamental approach, uh, driven by work that included building models, attending conferences, et cetera. But I think what was a little interesting is, um, you know, one kind of event that that perked my ears up when I was there was uh, the fact that at a town hall a couple months into my tenure at Point72, somebody actually asked Steve Cohen, the, the founder, at uh, about when, you know, Point72 would get more involved in crypto. Uh, and this was kind of just during the random Q&A portion of a town hall. It wasn't a structured question or pre-approved or anything like that. And his answer um, was, I guess you could view it as a Rorschach test, depending on if you're in the space full time. I think it was kind of equivocal or ambivalent in the sense that um, he didn't have a knee-jerk negative reaction, but was more uh, worried about things like liquidity or regulatory factors being constraints for the time being. 
Um, and I know you, you're probably aware that last year Steve invested in Ariana Simpson's uh, crypto fund via his family office arm. But I think the news coverage mentioned he had previously invested in a, in a VC fund of hers earlier. So, so that particular instance might be more driven by his familiarity with the manager than a uh, particular love for the space. But you know, my net takeaway from all that is that I think it was an incrementally positive data point in the sense that um, you know, clearly, I think I think people are aware of it as an asset class, and awareness is kind of that first step uh, climbing up the wall of worry, so to speak. So, um, I think maybe if the question is, do I think these mutual funds and hedge funds will get involved longer term? I think uh, eventually they will have to have a strategy, if not an allocation. I mean, uh, everyone's already talked about the, the math being supportive of this conclusion, given the correlation versus the the app performance that can be generated. But I think people just need to get a little more comfortable with uh, both A, how to do fundamental analysis, given it's a little different than comparing uh, stocks versus each other. And then B, uh, some of what I mentioned earlier with respect to the regulation, the um, operational security, and some of the other elements of due diligence uh, on on just the setup and the maintenance side of a, a fund management strategy. So Evan, you know, at point seventy two, like let's say you were still there mm-hmm. and you, know, you want to present them with a crypto investment. Do you think they're at the point where they could, you know, grasp or be comfortable with the fact that you know your tradition, the traditional models you use to value, you know, the TMT companies you covered wouldn't be applicable, or do you think that you know they're still or they would still have to get past that hurdle before you're even able to pitch? You know, sure. Um, um, to be fair, you know, I never really made the pitch for a specific cryptocurrency or token, uh, just given the specialization of the discretionary teams was pretty focused. You know, I think we each covered 30 to 50 stocks and that was essentially our universe. Um, I don't think there's anything, uh, that is structurally, you know, against the idea of investing in cryptos, I, you know, my guess is, uh, if they're not involved in the discretionary strategy now, it's more driven by, um, you know, lack of trading history within the different, uh, you know, coins and tokens. For example, obviously, BTC has a longer trading history than most, given it's been around. But a lot of these ERC tokens that came about as a result of the 2017 ICO boom, or even some of the ones through 2018, um, just don't, frankly, have enough price data, price and other types of data that would be uh, the inputs into the type of robust risk model that I think ultimately these larger funds require to, to invest uh, more heavily in the space. I think uh, that's probably been a near-term negative because it's delayed some of the quote-unquote institutional adoption that everyone has been hoping to, to drive the next bull market. But at the same time, I'm a little comforted because the solution to what I just mentioned really is just the um, progress of time. You know, As more data uh, accrues naturally and as better services, whether it's you know, nomics or Coinmetrics or, or Masari, uh, as these data services come about and um, you know come come up with better solutions to ultimately enable proprietary risk models to be built. I think that naturally paves the way for uh, the, both the fundamental research to dovetail with the uh, exposure and factor awareness in a way that that kind of has a a pretty simple conclusion of you know figuring out the allocation in my mind again. This is just kind of my personal opinion. I don't know anything about what what their plans ultimately are on any of these uh, funds, uh, whether they're hedge funds or mutual funds. 
So Evan, jumping into your fund and what you're building, you know, tell us your mission statement tapestry and tell us, you know, what was the final thing that pushed you in the direction to, you know, jump in full time? Yeah, great. Um, so tapestry capital is a fund manager and, uh, you know, like many people, Bitcoin was the introduction to the world of distributed ledger technologies for me. Uh, I'd read the occasional article or two covering the Mt. Gox hack back when it happened, but my real journey into this new world didn't start until I first read the the Bitcoin white paper during the garden leave between Citadel and Point72. Um, honestly, my original mission was just to do enough research to dismiss crypto completely as a Ponzi, but I think the fact that we're talking today means the evidence ended up pointing me in a completely different direction. So, um, you know, ultimately made the jump as I realized how transformational cryptocurrencies were going to be for uh, the world in the sense of improving economic freedoms and enabling trustless transparency, but also, um, you know, realizing that such a greenfield asset class with strong capital appreciation prospects uh, was well suited for some of my background to start trying to figure something out. And, uh, you know, it's a race that deserved 100% of my time. Evan, how many people told you told you, you were crazy when you decided to leave? Uh, I th- I, uh, a, a lot more than I expected among my friends, but I actually, I, I didn't necessarily go too broad with what I was doing next because I, I did, um, I did anticipate that, that there's probably a lot of education that I would have needed to dedicate my time to. It was something that I was hoping, honestly, the, I, I hope the bear market would turn around a little bit sooner than it has. But at the same time, as you have said, and others have said that a bear market is the right time, both to, to build and refine ideas that ultimately go into what helps a business scale during the next bull run. But also, you know, from a selfish perspective, I I did want to make the transition at the time I did in order to have a lower cost basis than than some of the guys that might have kind of pushed the button towards the end of 2017 or early 2018. Love that. And I appreciate the shout out. So, you know, on Tapestry, what differentiates the fund um, from other funds in the space? Sure. Um, I think, you know, Tapestry Capital or TapCap for short, it's uh, ultimately founded on a pretty simple premise that the market structure of fundamental-based long-short stock investing, I think that market structure will ultimately play out similarly uh, in cryptos as it has for traditional asset classes. And, um, you know, I think the space overall will grow in visibility and value over time, albeit not in a straight line up and to the right. So I think there's going to be an increasing appetite for allocators to seek exposure to an outsized, uncorrelated return stream uh, where available while mitigating some of the historically high volatility we've seen, uh, whether that's through portfolio construction or uh, better factor-aware risk management, which we've kind of talked a little bit about earlier. So I think ultimately a lot of uh, my professional experiences can be leveraged uh, in a bottoms-up fundamental analysis-driven approach that that tries to uh, apply the same diligence uh, that I I learned how to do with respect to stock investing, but modified to triangulate where intrinsic values might be mispriced in the world of blockchain-based cryptos and token projects. So it's, um, you know, not dissimilar to the deep dive work that you guys do so well at Delphi, um, but it's just maybe a little bit more focused on uh, the kind of liquid coins and tokens, as opposed to, I know you guys are, are also looking at some of the the projects that are a little earlier stage too, which is not quite my bread and butter. So I, I sort of focus on what um, what I know uh, I, I've had an edge in covering with respect to the skills that I've developed in the past. Appreciate that, Evan. Yeah, I mean, we're, I mean, to be honest, we're all over the map. Um, <laughs> I mean, 
we cover, you know, the big names, we cover the small names where there's value, but you know, that keeps it interesting. So, you know, when you made the move over, I mean, what's the hardest part about starting a fund manager for yourself here? Yeah. So separate from the normal startup challenges of having to wear all these different hats, uh, I think there's a distinct feeling of uh, what I would describe as trying to run underwater when learning to deal with this nascent infrastructure or lack thereof. Um, this came up pretty recently during your recent interview with Scott from Vision Hill, but you know things that a normal strategy would take for granted, whether it's banking relationships, fund administrator services, uh, custody, or even just figuring out operational security are all the more difficult to navigate uh, in the digital asset world. And oftentimes, you know, somebody that might be a marquee name for a long short equity strategy might not even have a practice uh, or, or ability to handle the the long short crypto strategy. So there's a lot of trial and error. And certainly I think that that has been one of the things that has kind of kept uh, a, a lot of emerging managers away from the space for now, even if they are uh, curious and looking on from the old world. Got it. That's interesting. And, you know, I think I'm seeing a lot of, you know, VC based funds pop up that are investing more in equity um, than liquid tokens. Um, I mean, Anthony Pompiano, he's on our board, you know, his fund specializes in that as well. Uh, Pantera is closing, mm-hmm. or they may have closed a $175 million fund focused on VC uh, by the time this comes out. You know, what's your take on, you know, I guess VC investing over liquid token investments? And I guess my second question for you there is, you know, do you think that helps the space or hurts it? Because, you know, in my mind, the companies they're investing in are obviously tied to the success of the underlying cryptocurrencies themselves. For sure. Uh, yeah, I think the simple answer to your second question is yes. I think VC-style investing has definitely helped the space. I mean, they've not only delivered outstanding returns uh, for their LPs, but I think a lot of these, uh, the current mainstays of the current crypto ecosystem, such as Coinbase, for example, uh, were early stage VC uh, you know, equity investments. So um, I think, you know, my, my background is more on the liquid strategies, but I think liquid strategies, especially from a fundamental uh, driven approach, can only really come about once uh, you know coins and tokens and projects have reached a scale where there is secondary market liquidity. So, I mean, I, I don't think um, strategies like what Tapestry Capital is doing would work without the kind of earlier um, investment and uh, the higher kind of higher risk, higher return profile of VC investments. And that's whether or not the VCs themselves are investing in the form of equity or uh, tokens. You know, I think recently, obviously, we've both seen that there's been a better or a more meaningful shift uh, back towards equity, traditional equity investing, as opposed to the SAFT driven ICO or STO approach. And I think that's ultimately a net positive too. Um, it removes kind of the risk of uh, treasury mismanagement that we've seen tank some once promising projects. And it's also, um, at the end of the day, I think probably shields uh, some of these projects that may be pre-revenue or um, you know, pre-user base from, from some of the public market volatility that, that uh, I think during bear markets has probably been a distraction uh, for some projects as well through 2018. That makes sense. And, you know, Evan, if you were you know, as a fund manager going out and let's say you found a liquid token that you really like, do you think that you'd be able to buy it? Or do you think that, you know, LPs in the space would get mad at their fund managers, you know, that they're buying liquid tokens and, you know, they're paying fees when they could just go out and buy them themselves. I'm always wondering because we see a lot of crossover in the space where, 
you know, large funds are making, you know, liquid token investments? Yeah, I think that's a great question. At the end of the day, you know, one of the, one of the challenges or the, um, you know, critiques that active managers do have to get over is why should I, as a prospective LP, in, invest in you versus just holding Bitcoin? And I think um, there are a couple of answers that, that I would raise. You know, first, even with crypto uh, correlation kind of between these different assets being higher now than I think will be in the case in the future, there's definitely opportunities where uh, I think there's asymmetric skews of both upside and downside um, risk-reward uh, when you look outside just the investable universe of Bitcoin or a top 10 index. Um, I think especially this is true on a risk-adjusted basis. Uh, when, for example, when looking at what is achievable from um, like a sharp ratio or a, a Sortino ratio, which, which is what oftentimes are, are used to evaluate managers, I think when you have a strategy that incorporates the combined benefits of finding these attractive longs and shorts and then um, kind of fold them together in a portfolio, you do realize additional alpha generation, both from the coin selection, but also from the benefits of portfolio diversification. Because as correlated as some of these assets are, there are um, ways to construct a portfolio that uh, decrease that correlation for the overall portfolio in a way that volatility comes down while um, hopefully you're actually able to outperform on the um, asset selection side relative to just being 100% into Bitcoin or 100% into Ether. So uh, I think that kind of dovetails with the strategy that I've described earlier as something that we focus on. So I think, you know, especially now where there is a lot of um, noise and less signal and uh, overall uh, perspective investors are still working hard to come up with a repeatable process to, to generate stable returns um, and sort through, you know, the noise that's on Twitter, on Discord, on Telegram, et cetera, I think there is definitely value that active managers can deliver. And, you know, over time, maybe that does come down. But I think if if active manager alpha generation comes down over time, I think that would ultimately be in a case where we're, you know, years or decades away from now, where crypto markets are much more efficient than they are today, similar to how equities are, uh, you know, a lot more efficient now than they were 20, 30 years ago when, um, you know, institutional flows were uh, smaller, uh, you know, ratio relative to the retail flows. And uh, we're seeing a lot of that play out today in terms of history, not necessarily repeating itself, but rhyming in, in how the structure of the market develops. I love that take, Evan. So, you know, moving forward, it, it's obviously clear that we need institutional involvement, you know, whether it be, you know, firms like Fidelity or Bank of America, you know, major, major banks, but we also need, you know, products and services built on top of crypto to move it forward. And I think a lot of people get, you know, some post-traumatic stress from Mt. Gox and stuff when they see things like BlockFi, like, you know, yeah. lock up your crypto for an interest. But I think it's pretty clear that we need these financial services to build out the ecosystem. You know, what's your take on, I guess, you know, the timing of that? I mean, do you agree? And, and do you think that, you know, building financial services or institutional involvement, you know, will take the space forward. Yeah, I think BlockFi is a great example. Um, you know, I've had a chance to attend some of their events, you know, meet with Zach and Flory, and, and obviously they have, you know, top tier investors in their company. I think lending specifically is a really important part of the maturation of cryptocurrencies and digital assets in general. It's one of those things where I think um, there's probably a vocal minority of uh, maybe ideologically driven 
uh, OGs or original you know, investors in, in Bitcoin that maybe are a little wary of fractional reserve banking kind of rearing its head again in the form of lending. But you know, I think at the end of the day, uh, most digital assets and cryptocurrencies uh, kind of espouse beliefs of letting the free market decide. And you know, I think lending specifically is a really important part of what's ultimately going to drive institutional adoption because of the same reason why, you know, for example, um, institutional stock lending is a major driver of profit for a lot of these uh, bulge bracket investment banks. When you read their tens, uh, 10 Qs and Ks and listen to their to their earnings calls, it's um, just another part of the uh, liquidity functions that ultimately match buyers and sellers. And personally, as somebody that um, enjoys earning yield from uh, the the longer term positions that I believe in by kind of depositing that with somebody else. I, I think uh, it, it is a, a market that's being served well. At the end of the day, um, I guess with respect to to BlockFi specifically, um, you know, I think they're obviously a top tier uh, operation, but everyone has to do their own diligence um, in, into ultimately the counterparties that they choose to associate with. But like everything else in life, it's all about uh, comparing the reward in this case yield with the risk of you know um, something something cagey going on you know I think uh, just putting your thinking cap on and uh, staying away from things that are too good to be true like uh, you know guaranteed returns of 100% plus or some of the more BitConnect like promises uh, I think goes a long way but at the end of the day you know I, I don't think um, protocols should be responsible for protecting people from bad investments but rather should work on minimizing the incidence of fraud hacking and other types of, of security that are structural as opposed to um, you know voluntary that makes sense Evan and I, I, I like that take so you know I think being a crypto fund manager um, I think a lot of people have access to some of the same information um, you know they might not all have access to the analysis um, you know sign up for Delphi if you'd like shameless plug there yeah but, yeah I'm a subscriber already it's it's, it's obviously differentiated and, and you know top quality I think yeah, yeah, I appreciate. It. We appreciate that from the entire team. But I guess my question there is, you know, since the information is out there and there's less of a, you know, relationship like on traditional Wall Street with, you know, companies and funds and stuff like that, do you think that there's more of, you know, I think there's more of an emotional relationship between LPs and their fund manager because there's just so much, you know, emotional heavy lifting and handholding to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you see like a greater, you know, psychological slash emotional kind of handholding within the crypto fund space versus traditional? Uh, yeah, I definitely think that is the case. Um, I think part of that is just driven by the upfront cost of educating uh, and building relationships with people that ultimately choose to invest with a specific manager. I think um, that initial kind of emotional connection, the fact that they are thinking of or ha- have made a bet on you ultimately does uh from their perspective, drive the investment decision maybe a little bit more than their understanding of Merkle trees or um, you know how exactly decentralized the given protocol is or what a protocol's um, you know development path is. So I think um, to your point, you know these markets are still pretty emotional uh, in terms of the volatility that that one witnesses and has to kind of deal with because of how nascent they are. So. Um, you know what I've heard from other successful fund managers and say about managing LPs is is really just being proactive and communicating. Uh, I think you know a great example of this is um, you know what happened recently with the Bitfinex news and really just staying on top of that situation. Um, I think updating 
prospective investors about one's thoughts on that uh, and keeping on top of you know the the tether discount and overall you know where do we go from here I think that it's always better to kind of make those calls uh, out outward going as opposed to waiting for inbounds and people uh, being forced to ask hey what's going on and, and really that puts you in kind of a worse position than just being proactive um, I think ultimately you know people uh, that have placed capital in the space whether directly with um, themselves or indirectly via managers uh, at this point kind of have believed um, or have come to believe in, in the longer term uh, upside for this space over kind of the five to 10 year period. So um, there is definitely a bit of management uh, emotionally to, to get LPs comfortable with the near term volatility at, while reiterating or, um, you know, un- unwavering in, without wavering in, in their belief for the, the long term. So Evan, you know, always understood what potential investors expect from you on your research approach? Like, do they expect valuation models back in your selection process? Or what are they looking for? Because, you know, placeholder, multi-coin, they put out really great thought pieces and posts and research reports. Um, So I'm wondering if that's more for, you know, sales and marketing, or if that's more for thought leadership, or if their LPs have come to expect that. Yeah, I think thought leadership, it's obviously a term that's thrown out quite a lot in the space, but it is an important part of um, the marketing process. So, you know, I've personally found it helpful as I've been meeting people and building my network in the space to talk conceptually at first um, about how I think through the various components of a few representative investments on both the long and short side. For example, comparing and contrasting on-chain transaction volume trends, uh, market multiples, and, and different ways to look at a specific coin, uh, as well as comparing underlying technologies uh, catalyst paths such as forks, and ultimately where I believe I have a variant view. Um, I think this is a lot better of an approach uh, to to start with, as opposed to just sending them a hard coded model output file and and hoping for the best. Uh, but ultimately, the the conversation uh, around um, allocations and investments is a, is you know a, pu- a process that takes uh, multiple months, if not longer, and it varies a lot depending on the the, f- the sophistication of the the party I'm chatting with. You know, single family offices. A little bit different than a, you know, just an individual high net worth um, person, and and you know the best conversations that I've had generally involve situations where they understand the appeal and option value of assets that are more decentralized, uh, are more digitally scarce and uncensorable, but feel uncomfortable managing the day to day of direct investing themselves, especially given some of the unique risks in this space of theft, hacking, etc. Um, I think you know I. I do publish currently, uh, you know, trying to do once a month an article um, on Medium and uh, distribute that over Twitter and some of the other social media channels. But you know, honestly, um, the marketing side and and what is the best return on time is still something that that I'm trying to figure out myself. So would love to you know hear feedback on that or thoughts uh, about the best way to spend um, kind of the, the time that I have in the day. Yeah, of course, I think you're doing a great job. And you know, just zooming out a bit for. You know, the fun space, Rhea and Wilson over at Circle Research put out um, their outlook, which was awesome. And basically, they said on one of the slides that there's 769 funds in the space. I'm wondering your take on, you know, the direction of the crypto fund space. Do you think that AUMs will grow? The number of funds will grow? Um, I mean, my biggest concern is we get back to this, you know, Wall Street era where, you know, fees are just compressed down to nothing and research becomes kind of an afterthought. But I'm always interested in your take here. Yeah, I think um, 
Short answer is yes. I, I think the crypto fund space will grow over time. Um, you know, I was also just looking, I think traditionally the, the latest stats from Prequin is the U.S. hedge fund industry is at about $3 trillion of AUM, and that's driven by, you know, 3,000 funds. So I think over time, you know, when you compare that to what you mentioned and what Vision Hill has put out about the size and number of funds in crypto, I think average AUM and number of funds uh, focusing on digital assets will grow over time. Though, you know, maybe my best guess is there's probably going to be a greater focus on AUM growth, uh, as that's a little bit more likely for existing funds to, um, if they're already in the adjacent strategies, to, to kind of allocate an SPV or a side pocket to crypto as opposed to kind of um, newer funds starting out initially. Although, uh, obviously, you know, one of the reasons I'm doing what I'm doing is I do believe um, there will either be some consolidation or joining of forces or capital deployments uh, directly into emerging managers that are um, trying to prove out a track record today um, in terms of capital flowing from the traditional world. Uh, to your point about you know fee compression and where I think the space will grow in the future, I think ultimately... Um, I think crypto funds and Wall Street, uh, they can play nicely together. I think there's going to be an alignment of incentives that we see play out where, uh, you know, as traditional allocators start deploying capital, they'll look to uh, hire away people with experience um, on the traditional side of things, or they'll look to, to kind of partner up with um, existing crypto fund managers that come from uh, traditional backgrounds. Since I do think from their perspective, if, um, you know, if an existing kind of neutral fund or hedge fund is looking to deploy capital, they may be at least initially a little more wary of some of the managers that are, you know, doing well today, but come from non-traditional backgrounds and may have, have less formal training in at least speaking in a way that, uh, you know, gets these allocators comfortable. So we'll see whether that is, um, something that is more of a temporary obstacle or a permanent one over time. But I think net, um, I, I do see more capital uh, and more players coming in, and that will be coincidental with hopefully you know, net inflows, uh, better research processes uh, that, that warrant the fees uh, that are being charged by managers in the space. Got it. That's great, caller. So you know, building on that question, I guess, how do you think institutional investors like mutual funds, hedge funds approach research and allocation to the space, especially compared to uh, retail heavy flows today? And the only thing I'd earmark this with is um, a friend, Jeff Dorman, the, the CIO at ARCA. Uh, he's got a whole a great team there, um, Katie and uh, Asan and, and all of them. Uh, mm -hmm. So my question there is, you know, Jeff has a really has a huge approach on risk management and weighting and I always thought that was kind of a novel idea in the space, uh, you know, not novel traditional, but novel here because not that many people do it. You know, what's your take on that and I guess just allocation in the space? Yeah, I think um, Jeff and the whole team at ARCA, some of whom I've had a chance to meet recently at, at their uh, conference, uh, they're, they're doing a great job. And I think you hit the, the nail on the head as, uh, as risk management is one of the, I think, larger differentiators between how institutional investors think about um, generating sustainable returns versus maybe retail investors that are a little more focused on, you know, when Moon, when Lambo, et cetera. I can tell you for sure, uh, you know, long onlys and hedge funds aren't going to be looking at uh, BART charts and, and Fibonacci retracements and some of the other uh, more shorter term momentum and technical analysis driven approaches that, that have worked uh, so far uh, in certain aspects of, of um, the space. I think uh, for an idea to make it past team diligence and investment committee 
at any of these larger firms, there uh, there's going to have to be the same type of bottoms-up analysis um, that you and I spend our time focusing on. I think real conviction ultimately doesn't come from just a cursory read of a white paper, but it requires being deeply immersed and engaged in not only the space uh, in a specific uh, coin and token, uh, coin or tokens ins and outs, but um, just kind of hitting the, the the ground in general, you know, being active, uh, going to events and, and keeping up to date with your network and delivering value and uh, ultimately staying in the know enough that you're not kind of caught off guard by larger um, movements uh, in, in the markets. Um, I think maybe a great way to contextualize this is uh, the, the funds that I used to work at, um, you know, the larger multi-manager equity platforms all uh, invest under, I guess, what people call mosaic theory, which is the idea that um, there are enough disparate small, um, you know, data points that, that are publicly available and everyone has access to that once put together uh, grants kind of a differentiated variant view that, uh, you know, reveals some mispricing that hopefully is temporary and one can profit from. So I guess in that context, I can't really think of a bigger puzzle that's waiting to be solved than the, the kind of high uh, noise, low signal ratio of crypto today. And I think that's kind of the job of both the buy side and the sell side to, to bring a little bit of order to chaos and hopefully realize some returns for um, the, the investors in the space. Evan, that's one of the best answers I've gotten on that question. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I appreciate that, Tom. Different ways, but that was great. So, you know, I, I like to keep these episodes short and sweet, but I want to close out with a few quick questions. Yeah, sure. If you were starting Tapestry today with all you know, uh, what would you do differently? Oh, man. Okay. Well, I haven't been around that long, but I guess I can rewind the clock a, a little bit more to, to what I would do differently at the very beginning. Um, one thing that I would have done is start going to local meetups uh, as soon as possible and as often as possible sooner rather than later. Um, this is only something that I've been doing um, a little bit more recently than at the very beginning. I think one of the uh, lessons I've learned is there's only so much research you can do from behind a screen, which was my kind of MO when I was still approaching the space as a hobby. I think maybe in some cases being paranoid is good, but I was a little too worried about getting doxxed and you know getting hit with the $5 wrench attack and revealing my private keys. I think even before I had put a single dollar uh, to work in this space. So at the end of the day, you can mitigate a lot of those risks by practicing better personal security and just realizing that most people in the world you know, don't care enough about you or your crypto to um, really make an effort. I think that realization has helped uh, make me more comfortable about putting myself out there. And um, it goes with what we've talked about earlier in the conversation, just building that network um, in an authentic, organic way, as opposed to you know, trying to preach a specific um, coin or token or, or shill things. I think uh, that authenticity is important, but you can only build that through in-person interaction. So I would say I wish I started that a little bit earlier than I have, but um, I am trying to catch up and be doubly earnest right now. I love that. And it, you definitely come across as authentic, Evan. That's why I love your approach. Um, I appreciate that, man. Of course. So just closing out, you know, where can people follow you? Where can they learn more about TapCap um, and what you're building? Yeah, uh, you can find me on Medium and LinkedIn by searching for my name, uh, first name E-V-A-N, last name Fung, F-E-N-G. Uh, I'm also on Twitter. You can search for at Evan the Fung. And um, lastly, there's a little bit more info about uh, Tapestry Capital as the uh, fund manager at tapestrycapital.fund. And um, I will be at uh, blockchain week events. So, you know, 
Ethereal Fluidity Consensus and the uh, the Digital Asset Summit put on by the BlockWorks guys. So uh, if anybody's listening before that, feel free to reach out. I'm always uh, happy to kind of grab a coffee or chat. And I am based in New York. So if you don't catch me there and you find yourself in the city, um, like I said, I'm always happy to meet new people that are either curious about or getting more interested in the space, whether you're from a traditional background or not. So looking forward to that. But uh, thanks again, Tom. This has definitely been a pleasure and uh, I'm really happy to have had the chance to come on. Yeah, of course, Evan. It's great to have you on. And um, for those listening, all of the links Evan mentioned will be in the show notes. And Evan, now that I know you're in the city, because I forgot, we have to grab coffee after this episode at some point. <laughs> yeah, no, it sounds good. I know we're both uh, pretty busy, but I'm sure we'll, we'll find some time to, to meet up and uh, you know uh, share some good coffee. Awesome. Evan, thanks so much for coming on. All right. Thanks again, Tom. Have a great one. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Please rate and review it to help other people find it. And visit DelphiDigital.io and use coupon code CHAINREACTION in all caps with no space to get an exclusive offer on accessing our research for our listeners. 